FIA welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here's your host, Nancy Pendergraf. Good afternoon. I am Nancy Pendergraf, and I have co-hosts here, um, Anne Gepetta, Mike Mandel, Peter Altschul, and Jason Castanguay. And our guest this afternoon is Maureen Young, and she is an incredible talent who is an opera singer, and she's done voiceover things for, this is not voiceover as relates to uh, iPhones, this is voiceover as relates to commercials, and I'll invite you here in a minute, please, Maureen, to explain a little bit more about that, and she's a writer and an actress. So we have lots to explore with you, Maureen, and are so excited that you're willing to join us. And so, well, thanks, y'all kick thanks back for inviting me to the parlor. <laughs> oh, we're delighted to have you. So y'all kick back with your drink of choice. We'll all have ours, and we will proceed. So now I met you, Maureen, first only last October. Lynn and I came to visit Mike, and he got us with a bunch of different friends of his, one of whom was Maureen. And at that time, you were all involved, I think it was maybe going to be the next, the up-and-coming week, with a venture on Netflix. Yes, I think we met the day before Netflix, Nancy, the night before Netflix, and I was going to upstate New York to do the Netflix film the next day, to be a part yeah, of it. Yeah, right. While we're on that subject, so we don't hop around too radically, tell us some about that venture. Well, it was very exciting for me because I had never done a film on set. You know, you hear these words, set and trailer and location and all that, and it was very interesting to me. Uh, one of the things that was most interesting, I think, is that Everybody in the film had their own personal assistant. When I first got there, they said, I'd like you to meet your personal assistant. And I thought, oh, they got me a personal assistant. But every actor in the film gets one. And those people, you know, run around and get you water and help you with the dresser, uh, the the wardrobe person and the makeup. And, you know, want to make sure you're on time for everything. And they drive you in what's called the trailer, which is... You know, it's like a big cab is what it's like with those high steps, you know. And that's where people sit and wait or study and study their lines or whatever. So that was very interesting to me. And also the costume was very strange. (laughs) It was strange? How was it strange? Yeah, well, I'm playing a docent in a museum. And there are a lot of society babes that come in there and try to volunteer and stuff. And there are two of us that play docents. So we're supposed to look very matronly, and they gave me this seersucker dress that, you know, if you remember that fabric, <laughs> it was kind of all puckers, and, and uh, they gave me that kind of a dress, and they fixed my hair so the front was all done in pin curls, and it was like permed in the back, and it was like I was, you know, 90 going on 91. <laughs> and and also in that, you were blind, were you not? Uh, yes, the role called for the a character, blind I mean. woman. That's what I mean. Yes, I that's mean. correct. That's okay. Yeah. The character is a blind woman in the in the book yeah. and in the play. And well, uh, refresh so our I, memory. I, the I, name I, of the book. What the name? The the name of that play. The name of the play is "Things Heard and Seen." That doesn't re- relate to blindness at all. Uh, right. It's a horror film, and Ooh. it's a horror film. Ooh. One of the stars is. Uh, Amanda Seyfried, she's all the rage now with the kids. So she was one of the stars. And uh, Melinda and I, the other docent, woman who played a docent, she and I were what they call day players, but we, we made enough money to take a bus home. <laughs> yeah, well, all right. <laughs> Always a good yeah, idea to be able to get home. Yeah. No, we actually got driven back. That's another thing. You know, they're, they're very accommodating because I think they want to make sure the actors you know, really know their lines and are not distracted by anything. So it's, it's yeah. kind of neat. Well, let's go back since you have, I mean, a lifelong career in so many of these mm-hmm. areas. 
to uh, you grew up in Chicago. I did. Uh huh. And went to tell us some about your school. Well, I went. I I went to Catholic school all the way through, and and uh, I think the the greatest thing I got from that is that the nuns gave us a good education, and I think they taught us to focus, perhaps out of fear, <laughs> but we did learn how to focus, and that was. I think that was something that has served me very, very well, is the ability to focus. And so that was important. Especially with as many different areas as you've worked in, I expect it was essential that you focus. But you got yes, started, you told me, in with your music, you got attracted by a program where they let children listen to the symphony, right? And the symphony used to have, the Chicago Symphony had, I don't know if they called it afternoon youth concerts or something to that effect. And my mother used to take me to the symphony on Saturday afternoon. And I was absolutely enraptured by this oboist. The oboe player was Ray Stills, who was the principal oboist for the symphony. And I think he was playing a Brahms sonata the day that I heard him. And you could have heard a pin drop. It, there was a stillness that came over the audience. And I said, I want something I can do. And, of course, I was singing and speaking and doing all that kind of thing since I was nine years old. So I wanted to be able to elicit that kind of silence. The only time I've ever heard that sound of silence is when I've been in the snow. And maybe you all have experienced that where if you're in a yard or something, and you're surrounded by drifts of snow, and you, what you hear is, is a silence that cannot be duplicated unless you're at the symphony and hearing Ray Stills, I guess. But I wanted that kind of purity in my sound, and I wanted the kind of, uh, the kind of thing that would take people away from their problems and al- allow them to feel, which is what I think the arts do. When mm-hmm. you were at the Catholic school, um, mm-hmm. your activities that you did as far as singing and in radio and TV, you, bought, you started all of that as a child, right? Well, my first job was when I was nine years old, and I played, actually, I did the offstage cartoon voice for The Magic Door, and I basically said, open, come open, and with me to The Magic Door, and I sang that on Saturday mornings, and that was my first job. Also, I started to sing in Chicago for women's clubs in the afternoons. Back in the day, there were uh, really society women, you know, who'd get together and have pedophores and tea and all that. And I used to go there and sing, and they were also impressed with this adorable child who could sing. <laughs> you know? So I did that in the afternoon, rather in the mornings usually. I did Magic Door. Sometimes I'd go to the women's clubs in the afternoon. But I learned how to behave, you know, which was difficult for a kid that was so energetic as I was. But I learned how to behave in professional situations and in social situations, I think. When I was a teenager in Chicago, I think that's when I started to establish myself as a character actress. And I think that happened when I was hired to do Unshackled with Jack O'Dell and the gang. And we recorded out of the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago, which I still don't understand why they called it Pacific Garden Mission. But anyway, that's where we performed. And uh, we perform in for a lot of people were sort of down and out. And we do these hour-long, very melodramatic shows. And I was hired to do all kinds of young women who were sort of down and out, the, the pregnant teenager and the teenager who was on drugs when drugs were just beginning, I guess, here. So I learned how to act, but I also feel like the benefit that I got from Unshackled was immeasurable. I learned to work with older people who were very successful in Chicago, particularly, and they were just observing them. I did a lot, I still do a lot of observation, and just observing them gave me an idea of how one acts in a professional situation and also what it takes to do this craft well. And I think, I think that's where I got that where I first got that. Is and Unshackled a program or a play? Or what is it? Oh, what Unshackled specifically was it? a program. It was a syndicated program. 
that right. was still being, I think they have the archives are still being aired. So that was one place that I worked. And those people that worked there, some of them had their own production companies, and some of them, since they worked with me on a job, they, because of my acting, I guess they felt like they could hire me. And so a lot of my connections came from those people. Well, I know you told me first that your mother got you connected with a singing teacher, I suppose. But did you also get acting lessons or did you just... No, I never had an acting lesson oh, wow. in my life. You just did it, it as you went, huh? Okay, and then I know... Yeah, I just, as it as came naturally, you know. It, I loved character work. I still do. And it, it came very naturally. I'm very fortunate. I am very fortunate. And that led you into your opera career, I mean, singing La Boheme, and, and as a teenager, the telephone, and... Uh, well, um, in my late teens, I was doing, I was starting to perform as a singer, mostly. I had been working with singing teachers in Chicago and, and coaches, so most of the work I've done with coaches and teachers has been in New York, and my first teacher was at Juilliard. His name is Oren Brown, or was. He's no longer with us. But uh, he was my first teacher, and I learned a great deal from him. Like, I learned how to practice effectively. And my first coach was Lloyd Walser at the City Opera, who also gave me valuable lessons. And Lloyd Walker was perhaps a connection by your meeting Beverly Seals, or how did that work? Yeah, how it worked was... Lloyd knew that I loved Beverly Sills. I loved her voice, but I especially loved her, the way she did her appositores and everything. I just loved her, the way she expressed everything. And I guess, in a way, I tried to sound like her. And so I was having a coaching session. We were working on Boris Piegarvio Dio, which is a concert, a Mozart concert aria. I loved Mozart anyway. But he wanted to startle me. And and he did, because he slammed the score on the piano, and I thought, oh, God, temperament, here we go. And he said, if you try to, I'll never forget this, if you try to sing this piece like Sills, I'm not going to work with you. And that was a gift, because it taught me to realize that I had to develop my own artistry and, and my own expression. And although you know that, you know, there's something about somebody really hitting you over the hand with it, you know, and saying... This is what's got to be done. Even though I had Sill's influence, and I think I still do, and I did actually happen to sing with her in 1981 at the National Catholic Education Council Convention, of all things. And although Beverly is was Jewish, she was very involved with the nuns and the Catholic students. I think it was St. Joseph's Catholic School because she sent her daughter to the nuns to get educated. So... I guess she wanted to perform that for them, and, and they hired me to sing with her. That was a big deal, a real big deal. I would think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to give short shrift to your singing career, but I do want to get around to, I mean, I'm thinking that was in 81, and before you left Chicago, and you were in Chicago uh, up until 78 or 79, is that correct? I was in Chicago and, through high school. And... And was that and the period of time when you did the, when you had your own little half hour interview show? Yeah, I was WLM. very well connected. I have to say, I the way that happened is that a friend of mine who was a publicist, and she was as hyper as I was, and she uh, was about five years older than me, and and we were both in the National Organization for Women. I was quite an activist for that for a while, except I didn't like that "Hear Me Roar" thing that song. But anyway, uh, Casey was in that. And apparently, Casey was some big deal in Chicago now. And she came to me and she said, I don't know if WLS approached now or now approached them. But she said, you know, nobody wants to do this, which I think is interesting. Nobody wants to do this, but we want a, a, a now sponsored uh, half hour show a couple days a week. And you'd like to do this, right? <laughs> Okay, and she said it doesn't pay anything. I mean, it's like $25 a show. But I thought, don't you ladies understand this is a 50,000-watt station? And, you know, and I love to write and I love to interview, and I thought, you know, I'll write the leads and just ask the questions, and that's what I did. So I had that from 1975 through 1978. And then it was then that I left for New York. 
<clears throat> Who were some of the people that you interviewed on that program? Well, I'm going to tell you the funniest one, or it isn't funny when I think about it. I just can't believe it. I There was a guy, I don't know why our publicist did this, the publicist for LS and the publicist who was promoting this particular individual. He was a car repair salesman, but he did something fancy. I don't know what the hell he did, but he had some big, he had some big involvement with cars. So I don't think they told him I was blind. And he comes in and, you know, we're going to talk about cars. And I remember saying to him, so how are your pistons? I don't even know what a piston is. And the whole place just broke up. And I finally, I asked, it, this was tape, thank God. And I said to the, to the engineer, and I said, can we stop this? And I apologized to the guy, and I said, you're going to have to help me out here. So we're going to have to probably edit this tape a while. But if you can help me with some questions, that will get us to, to what's important about you. Uh, and he did. I mean, we both knew this was a very difficult situation, but it was funny at the time. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't funny when he went back to his publicist and said, what the heck did you do here? <laughs> well, okay, there was an area where you were totally winging it, but another right. instance where you got fully prepared and were comfortable, I expect, at least with the subject matter, but did you not interview George Shearing also? I did, yes. Actually, I met George Shearing at the London House in Chicago. He performed there a lot. And I asked him, because in those days I was pretty gutsy, and I uh, really in my, I would say my 20s until I was almost in my 40s, I wasn't afraid to talk to anybody. And I, I went to the London House to see him and everything. And I don't even know who I went with, probably my mother. And I said, that I had this show, and not only that, but I wanted to write a magazine piece about him. And then I sent a query letter to the Chicago Tribune, and they, they said, okay, and, you know, uh, and so I wrote the piece, and it did get published. And he was on the show as well, even though he, it was not a woman. But he, uh, he talked about his work, and one of the things he said to me, he said, Maureen, you're never going to be able to stop proving. Everything you do, since you're blind, you're going to have to prove yourself over and over again. And I decided at that time even that I wasn't going to take that in, that I was going to store it away as something I know, but that if, that, if I felt that way, it would destroy my focus. And the most important thing to me was to be the best I could be, to be prepared, to practice all the time. I mean, I practiced every day. For I'd practice about a half hour in the morning starting at 8 o'clock, and I would just do technique. And then Sometimes in the afternoon, I'd work on repertoire if I wasn't seeing a coach. So I just figured, you know, I'm going to do what I do, and that's all I can do. Yeah. It made it not a chip on your shoulder or something, but just an opportunity to work hard, knowing that certainly we do have to be prepared, but that doesn't have to be the central part of your life. When you did the telephone, that naughty thing, but then didn't you write a piece also sort of a takeoff on that? I wrote a piece called Telephones in Opera, and yes. I also wrote, uh, and I also performed Love What You Men, which is a French one-act opera, and this girl is very upset because the man is leaving her, and he's telling her about it on the telephone. It's done in French, and it's really not in my vocal range. It was lower, but I did it anyway. I would not do that. Well, now, we're, we're going to leave Chicago here in a little bit, but uh, in your... <laughs> In your television and in your voiceover, were you not doing things like that at the same time while you were in Chicago? Yes, at the same time. yes. professionally I was doing well, and I was making connections well. And, uh, and of course, I, and I had this discipline from day one. Really, I did. And uh, I just, let's see, the first thing I did was, of course, the magic door. And then as I got older, into my teens, I started to do commercials and narration. And uh, in those days, even if you had a highlight voice like mine, they would hire you to do corporate narrations or commercials because in those days we weren't worried about reality TV and reality this and that. And now if you, if you do voice work, you really have to be in the age category that you're portraying. However, there is more character work for people my age, so that's good. That's very good. But I did do a lot of commercials, several national spots. 
Um, I saw Clairol and... and uh, yes, Clairol, Daisy Shaver, Craft uh, uh, Cheese Whiz, bunch of other, bunch of those. Hallmark Yeah, cards. AT&T, you did. AT&T, yes. Yeah, and a lot of that was on radio, and I don't wouldn't I wouldn't think that today it will matter what you ought to be able to get away with that. But if they got the video, then uh, well, it brings us to a, another facet of reality yeah. there, huh? Yeah, <laughs> but what I see with you is that wherever you are, you just go on and adapt some more, and and that's it. But now on this resume, you talked about did you live in San Francisco from ninety five to two thousand five? Yes. I was there. I did do a concert called Songs at the Munich School. They were all German leader. I don't like German, but I did the concert because I was hired to do the concert. And I did another couple of recitals there, and I also did some teaching during that period in my life. And then um, I returned to New York. I came to New York in 78, and then after, for a while, I uh, I was convinced that I ought to try Northern California because there would be work out there. But I had to come back to New York. I still had the connections here, and and I wanted to go back. I felt like I knew how to handle the East Coast a lot better than the West. Well, and you had the opportunity to choose. Yes, I was traveling. But you traveled all over the country with your, what what would you, would you call those solo, yeah, art song recitals, was that the way, or? They were art song recitals, yes. I particularly liked singing in French. When I was in San Francisco, I did do a Rachmaninoff evening, and uh, he has beautiful, beautiful vocal music. And I shared that recital with a pianist who did all kinds of Rachmaninoff pieces as well. But we played separately, except for, of course, the accompanying she did. That wasn't Margaret Singer that worked with you. Now, I know you told me she was. Singer, oh, she's wonderful. Margaret Singer is a New York was my New York coach after Lloyd, and I worked with her on really on everything that I worked on, and she helped me pick repertoire, and I loved to sing Mozart stuff, so I used to sing that aria that Lloyd didn't want me to sing, and I tried to get as much sills out of it as I could, <laughs> but it's... Which it's, one was that? I just love that. The Vore Spiegadio Dio, which oh, is yeah. probably okay. my favorite. And also, I worked on, I was singing some oratorio, and I worked on the Mozart C minor, C minor Mass a lot, and on the Bach. You also sang Queen of, Queen of the Night. I did. I used to say, who better than I to be the Queen of Night? That would tell <laughs> you I have no ego whatsoever. And I did sing the Queen of Night for auditions a lot, um, and the, the voice accommodated that. Yeah, the voice accommodated that. You know, you got to sing up there to Elf's. I'm talking two octaves above. (laughs) But I was lucky because the voice sits up there. My voice is very high and light. I wouldn't do the Queen of Night these days. They they'd all leave the audition. But uh, back back then, I you know, in my oh, I'd say until I was about forty, I could have sung the Queen of Night easily. And I used to vocalize up to a G, so I could so I could sing the the uh, the F pretty comfortably. All right, and then you sang Mimi in La Boheme. Yes, I did. I did. La Boheme was my opera debut with the New York Grand Opera Company and contract players from the Metropolitan Opera. They were the orchestra. That was a big deal. I did that in 1979. But I learned a lot doing Mimi. Um, I learned that there are certain performers that have too much ego going that they can't sing high C's. I wasn't one of them, but one of our people was like that. That was the tenor. He he broke on the high C, and it was unfortunate, but I could just feel the tension he was feeling as he was trying to get up there. However, the fellow who was a baritone who played Marcello, he was a joy to work with. He was very humble, and he had a beautiful voice. And we did Act 3 together, and it was very, very emotional for both of us. That's where... Mimi is telling Marcello that she's dying of tuberculosis and she doesn't know how she's going to end her relationship with Rodolfo. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, an emotional thing there. It was. Is. Yeah. You know, in an opera, everything is larger than life. So this was the romantic era, era, so, you know, in music. And we had a director who wanted a lot of Scoopy, swoopy stuff, you know. He took Puccini and just swooped the hell out of it and, and made it even much more emotional than it was normally. You mean it's already Puccini and we're taking it to the nines, huh? 
Yes, we did. Yes, Nancy, <laughs> to the nine. Yep, we did. He really wanted a lot of sloppy singing as far as I was concerned, but it was it's okay. Well, there are so many areas that you've worked with. I want to invite some of the rest of you guys to ask Maureen some questions, if you like. Sure. Hi, Maureen. This is Annie. Hi, Annie. Hi. I was listening to what you were saying before about those moments of silence uh-huh. in, your, in yeah. your, I guess, your field of quiet and snowfall and yeah. those powerful moments. Could you share some of those powerful moments with us in your career? I would really appreciate that if you could. Sure. Well, I think for me that every performance, if you're really involved with your audience and they're involved with you, you can create that kind of stillness. And it's a, a partnership really between the artist and the audience. And I've experienced that in my singing. And it's, um, it's a gift, really, it is to have the audience with you. And, uh, you know, you sort of seduce them with your singing, with your phrasing, all that. I don't know. I just think that the arts give us that opportunity to, to cause people to stop and listen and feel and and get away from all the nonsense that goes on in life and all the minutia. And I think that's where the arts really serve us because I think we bring beauty into people's lives. Yes, I agree with that. I've also experienced those kinds of moments reciting my poetry for people. And it's something, sure it's something that you know that when it happens, you know it, but how to like yes. describe it, it's almost... It just flips between your fingers, you know? Mm-hmm. I mm. understand. Yeah, I know you do. Now, That's why I asked. <laughs> Thank you. I do. Thank you, Oh, Annie. you're welcome. Thank mm-hmm. you. And in your writing, Maureen, yeah. I know that you uh-huh. did the, you did an, a feature article on, well, as we said, George Shearing, and also you did yes. a feature article on Beverly Seals. And, I did. I tried uh, to be prepared, but my heart was getting in the way. <laughs> oh, well, my gosh. For real. Tell us some more examples of what you have done as a writer. One of the things that I'm proudest of, I think, is that I usually write a tribute to my dogs after they pass on to the Rainbow Bridge. And I've written about all my dogs. I've written tributes. There's one that I wrote, though, about my golden retriever, Schooner, whom I called Slow Mo Schoon, because he was kind kind of a laid back kind of guy. But I loved him deeply, and he always wanted to please so much. And when he died, I wrote something that feels like it wrote itself, really. I feel like I just sat at the typewriter. We were using typewriters then. I just sat there, and I just let the keys direct the, the poetry of the thing. And I'm proud of that piece. I, but well, I've written she one shared that with me, and I want you to share it with us, if you will. Sure, Nancy. I memorize everything, so let's hope I haven't forgotten it. Okay. Since age 18, I've never had to walk a cappella. And in the late 80s, there arrived this wonderful canine fella to compose the tune. His name was Schoon. And as my accompanist, he took the lead and set the beat and anchored the melody of footstep magic. His was a silent song, so precious, so sweet, so that above his golden fleece I could sing and soar and do so very much more than ever a blind person could imagine or see. And the crescendo of his guidance led my envelopment to give me the freest voice that ever could be. That's how it seemed to me, as we walked along alone yet together, making music of mutual intuition, love, and respect. That's how the work was for my schooner and me. He was my eyes in traffic, my most loyal accompanist, my family, my solidity, my friend. To the threshold of the Rainbow Bridge, he carried off more than a decade and a half of trade secrets and fears. He carried them off to be buried forever in that special deposit box of companionable canine trust. And when I die and sing my highest note, the one that shall again bring me to his side, at the threshold of the bridge, he will be waiting. He will take the lead with pride. He will set the tempo and control the stride. The pup will move first as I sing out his name and say the word forward. And we'll cross the bridge as a team once more. And in perfect synchronicity, we will stand on heaven's shore. 
That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I wanted for sure for her to share that. Oh, thank you, Nancy. I'm happy to do that. Happy I remembered it. <laughs> that always <laughs> glad that you could that recite it. it. You know, I'm at the Another age where thing. you walk into a room and you say, why did I come in here? You know, it's one of those things. But I've always oh. had the ability to memorize, thank God. I still memorize when I have to. Like for, for uh, Netflix, of course, you know, but I had to memorize it. <laughs> There are cameras in front of you and cameras behind you, and they're all over the place. You think, I better not forget this. But it's fun, because I love acting, so I didn't forget. Yeah, so that was really great for you to have that. I know you were talking, besides your dog that helped you with mobility, or your dogs the, through the years, that right. I know that six. you were right. You were also an avid Braille reader. Oh, yes, Absolutely. I have taught voiceover technique here in New York at the School for Film and Television. I taught there one summer. And the reason I'm mentioning that is that I told the kids, look, the only way you're going to develop the cadence and you're going to develop your particular style that is also adjustable, because directors sometimes think they know what they want and you have to give them what they want because it's their job to ask you to do that. And I'd say to the kids, what you have to do is read aloud every day. I don't care what you read. Just sit there and read it aloud for 20 minutes or a half hour. I still do that every day. Even if it's a a Braille bank statement or the Christmas carol or whatever, I read it. And I try to do cold reads and see if I can get through it. Um, I think that's very important. As far as my Braille skills are concerned, you know, I, I have had various Braille displays over the years. The first thing I look for when I buy a Braille display is, is it going to make too much noise when I move the advance bar? So I've learned, I I have the Polaris Mini now, that's my display of choice. And one of the main reasons is that if I hold my fingertip on the side, then I can almost make it totally silent when I advance the bar. It's something you have to work at, but it's a skill. I, however, I prefer to read hard copy. I love reading Braille rather than reading it off a display. But I can do either. Now, in your writing, also, I know that you wrote, not so, it didn't seem like it was so long ago, that you wrote a play. And, and, <laughs> oh, yeah, so I did. Wrote. It's called A Delicate Debacle. And it took me a year and a half to write it. And I collaborated with a neighbor of mine who wasn't working. He'd only done one job this year, or that year, I should say. And so we had a lot of time to work on this play. And he was like a dramaturg with me. He he asked me questions, and he got me to think. And I'd I'd say something and he, that he liked, and he would applaud, and he knew that would help. <laughs> it did. Of course. And, uh, as it turned out, we started working on the play quartet together with two other friends of his who also hadn't been working. And, you know, you were all actors, and so we did that. And now Steve and I are working on putting together the possibility of a play, which is called The Sweeter Side of Shame, and we'll see where it goes. This is Peter. I think the play should be called Hi. The Shameful Side of Sweet, but that's just me. I beg your pardon? The Shameful Side of Sweet. Ah, that's an interesting title. But, you know, it's your play. <laughs> Listen, I actually want to ask you a question. And, Nancy, I apologize for interrupting. I, I, no, please. I, 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 that's okay. I messed up. Can, can, can you, you talked about your Braille as a, as, a, um, as a voiceover person. Can you talk about your mm-hmm. use of Braille and other facets of your professional life, like an opera singing or, or, um, oh, sure. uh, or writing plays or any, any, any other work that you've done? Oh, my God, this will take three hours, but I'll start. The, uh, my music transcriber was the famous uh, Betty Krolick, who maybe some of you have heard of. She was a big deal in, in Braille music transcription and one of the first to do Braille music. Actually, her story, briefly, is that she was a concert violinist and had two retarded children and felt that she was depressed and couldn't keep up her career. And her husband suggested that she get into the field of uh, music transcription. And so she looked into it and, and enjoyed it because she was a great musician. So she started brailing music. And she brailed my scores from the time I was about a sophomore in high school until I sang Mimi. I have the score for Mimi for Bohem. 
but she brailed. And she did that one? Brailed it for you? She did. I still have it. Yep. <laughs> she did Bowen. She did Love What You Meant. She did all everything. Lots of my art songs. Now, I will also tell you that I use a combination of Braille music and working with using my ears as well. I start with listening to the whole thing so I get a sense of it, uh, of the harmonics and so on. And then I use the Braille music to give me um, something that will help me relate the part to the whole of it. So that's how I do that. And that's how I use Braille. Peter, is that what you wanted to know? Yeah. I mean, and, you know, obviously you've done lots of different things in entertainment. Yeah. And I was just curious about other things. So, for example, you talked about Unshackled a while back. Were those scripts Braille for you as well? I brailed them. This was the day when the Perkins was really used a lot. I brailed the scripts that I had to do. And I would just braille a cue line for myself, like if somebody was speaking before me. I'd take the last two words or something. And I would put blank lines between places where I was going to speak. And I do that. I brailed quartet, and uh, I'm sure I'll be brailing the shame of sweetness or whatever it was, <laughs> you know, I'm sure I'll be brailing that because it's, and quartet is in braille also. Um, a friend May I jump in and ask a question? It is. Maureen and I are friends. We live in the same apartment building and usually have dinner with a friend of hers uh, every weekend, at least once. I wanted to ask you about Unshackled. Then yeah. how did you get the script? Did somebody record it for you, or did somebody read live and you took notes? How did you prepare? In that particular instance, Jack O'Dell was the guy who was the director of that. And uh, he I think he wrote the scripts, actually. And his secretary would usually read the script to me over the phone or send it to me, and I could, you know, use my typewriter and try to, and read it line by line. It was not a cold read. So the secretary would record on cassette or tape the script and send it to you, and you would write down your cues that way? Yes. Okay. That's how I did it in those days, yeah. That's how I did it. And also, you referred to uh, quiet braille display. Maybe I missed something, but uh, that has to do with, Doing voice voiceovers, yes, and and uh, the necessity. Uh, your your explain what the scene is uh, when you're doing a voiceover, the booth, the silence, and just how you handle that whole experience with Braille, from preparation to actually uh, doing the job. Okay. Well, first of all, you have to win the audition. So. Um, it's hard for me to do cold reads and then go to the audition and, you know, because people are, they're making changes sometimes right up to the minute somebody goes into audition. But I only get the script really a minute or so before I go into the cab and they email them to me and then I go line by line and take it down. But of course, it's, it's faster now because I know Braille shorthand and my own shorthand and all that. So when I get to the studio to audition, I bring the Polaris, or if I have the hard copy, which, again, is my, my preference, I bring it with me, and I read it there, and I try to give it, you know, whatever they want you to give to it. And then, of course, at the job, if I win the job, I always prefer a Braille script. Is that answering your question? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Thank you. One thing that I was getting at was you using a Braille display while you're being recorded, and thus that, that's the reason that you needed to have uh, to deal with a silence and right. taking a, a braille display into the, do you go into a booth? Yeah, usually you do. Yeah, usually you do. I prefer that rather than sometimes you're just in a room and they, they put a mic on a stand in front of uh -huh. you and pop filter and, okay, do that. Um, I don't like that. I like the the feeling of being in the booth. Where do you put, I'm sorry, Maureen, where do you put a rail display in that case where you're in a confined area? I got it worked out. Yeah, I've got it worked out. There's, yeah, usually there's a music stand, okay? And so I lower that stand so I'm as far away from the mic as I can get with the braille copy or the Polaris, whichever. And again, my preference is Braille. So I will lower it 
probably a little below stomach level. And, of course, the microphone is higher. And I've learned how to angle the music stand so that I have the back of the stand where the lip of it is, if you call it that. Um, That is facing me. And usually, sometimes, I bring one of those rubber pads. I don't know where you can get them or what they're called, but it's, I put something to minimize the impact. You know, they're a little bit spongy. Right, right. Well, even a mouse pad. Well. Mm-hmm. That's would, perfect. Yeah. Would do it. That's because, <laughs> sure, a mouse, a, a mouse pad would do it. But those are the things I do that I've come up with. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. You wrote your play. But you also yes. performed it. I think you, know, you told me seven, seven times. times. But yeah, you can go into what it t- when you've written a play. That's only the start of. Oh my God! That, you know you don't realize you write it, and Annie, you could probably understand this as well. You write it, and you and you 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 give birth to this child, you know, and it's and you've worked so hard on it and everything, and it took so much discipline and rewriting, and, and you think, okay, now I've got it. It's written. No, you don't. You have to get a producer for the play, meaning money. And if you can't raise enough money, then you have to pay for the venues yourself, which I couldn't afford to do because I wanted to do it on Off-Broadway, and I couldn't get enough money to raise enough money to do it. So that's why there, there were seven performances. <laughs> Is the Ellington Room off-Broadway? Yeah, that's off-Broadway, actually. Uh, I've done a lot of play readings there as well. But, yes, I did my play there. Maureen, this is Annie. Um, I I can totally... I totally understand what you mean. The marketing yeah. and, and the and Ugh. getting the, oh, it's just, it is the Achilles heel of creativity sometimes. Yes, it is. Yes. It is, but you won't go far without some of it. And so another thing that I had talked with you about, uh, Maureen, was you have in your whole career pretty much had agents and marketing people. Talk to us some about that. Well, in Chicago, I had two agents in succession. I worked with Shirley Hamilton and Amelia Lawrence, and they were my agents and got me auditions and did a lot of the marketing, of course, for their clients and, uh, I mean, the the people they were handling. And, uh, of course, there was a lot in it for them because if I got the job, they got paid as well. So that was the impetus there. And in New York, I have a manager now. And... uh, She's gotten me eight auditions since I did Netflix, and I think that's pretty good, given that we're, we were about to go into to COVID. Now there's, there's really very little work available for anybody because of COVID, so that's really tough. Yes. Maureen? Yes. Could you talk about how your agents talk about your blindness in their sales pitch, if at all? I'm not there when they sell. I don't know what all they say. I don't think, I mean, I may be kidding myself, but I don't think that's much of an issue now. I don't know how they sell it. I don't know because I think they're trying to sell my talent. I'm, I'm not sure what they do with it. I've never made a deal of it. It seems it's, it's a balancing act. On one level, they want to sell yeah. your talent, which you have a lot, but some people would be, might be really annoyed if you showed up and they weren't aware that you were blind. So I, I, that's why I asked the question. Yeah, I've shown up at auditions where they didn't know I was blind. And usually, if I walk in and I feel attention, I will just simply say, I would like to tell you how I do what I do. In case you have any questions, let me let me tell you before we begin. Because that way, I figure I get that, well, how, how is she going to do this out of the way so that they can listen to what I have to say when I read? So that's one little trick I've learned. Great advice. It is great advice. And, and then there's always the car repair person. If all else fails, turn that turn the doggone recorder off and talk to him, huh? Oh my! Oh, I knew I had to do that. I don't know from nothing about cars, as was clear. <laughs> no, I don't know anything. I know you put the key in the ignition and turn the key. That's about what I know. I'm I'm really not well versed on that subject. Yeah, but it was a tribute to your problem solving. I say. Well, thank you. I knew I had to do that, though. I knew I had to do it. I mean, I was 
yeah. way out of my league. I had no idea what I was talking about. So I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall listening to this guy tell his agent or publicist <laughs> or whoever that, you know, how dare, you know, I can just imagine the fury. <laughs> oh, perhaps, perhaps they had a sense of humor, we would hope. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. so. <laughs> you know, we have so many neat ways to go and talking about all of your talents and abilities and and your different areas. But I'm wondering, I would like for you to have the opportunity to tell us anything that we haven't covered that you would have liked for us to cover. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. I was just sitting here babbling away. I think the main thing I'd like to stress, and I know I've talked about this, is discipline. Because I think a lot of people wannabes, you know, they think, oh, I want to be a writer. I want to be a a sing, a concert artist. I want to, I want to do commercials. Well, not only marketing is necessary, but I think if you don't have discipline that will make you consistent, then you might as well go somewhere else. Well, you've got to have something fun for those people to market. Well, that's right. And unless the, there's consistent, they have to know, for example, that if I'm going to sing, which I'm not doing any longer, but if I'm going to sing, that they can count that especially the agents that they can count on the voice to be the same day after day that they're they they know what the product is and so if you don't work on your voice every day you know a little at least a half hour that you know you're not going to get that process going for you when you need it and uh, i think that's very important maureen yeah you've been in the business it sounds like for what uh almost 40 years i was nine since you were nine, so it's... You think, oh, so you think I'm 49? Of oh, course. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So you've been in business for quite a while. Can you talk about what has changed over the lifetime of your experience and what has remained the same? And while I'm oh, at boy. it, what would you say to folks who are interested in doing the kind of work you're doing? What advice would you give to younger people who might be interested in, in following your path? I don't think the business has... I don't think any of show business has the integrity it used to have. You know, I think the Internet has made a change. For example, a lot of people these days are doing voice work, meaning voiceovers, over the Internet. Now, that's great because economically, for the client, they don't have to spend as much, and they can get talent that isn't as well prepared. And so people will work for less, and the way they make money is through volume, getting a volume of work. People who are in the unions are usually better talent, uh, and most of those people have agents. But now the agents are starting to say, well, wait a minute, we can bring in so-and-so from Ohio or wherever, and it won't cost us as much because we don't have to worry about their accommodations. You know, all they have to do is record remotely, you know. And another thing that's changed is that People tend to have to be, uh, a lot of stuff is done, done in home studios now. And so people have to be engineer, director, and talent. I don't think that's a good idea. I think you should not have to multitask because I don't think you do all of it well then. I think you do, you engineer or you, or you voice the thing or whatever. But I don't think, for example, you can direct yourself very well or too subjective, you know, as would be understood. And your second question was about what would I tell people? Well, if they want to be in this business, they better be able to read, <laughs> you know, and kind of leave the ego at home and try to just be the, the character or the voice of whatever they want you to do, whatever they want you to be. And just try until you've worked with a director a number of times. I would just learn to be quiet, you know. Just go in there and, and be quiet. And if you're spoken to, then you, you read whatever they tell you to read. And if you're acting, then you save your character until you're presented. And that's it. And you have to learn to take direction well. And one of the main things is you don't say to the director, well, I don't think that's the way it should be done. I don't want to humor you with that. I wouldn't do that because you won't get a job. And can you talk about, you talked about discipline, the important that was for you. Can you talk about yes. a little more about what that meant for you, the things that you do on a daily basis or you did on a daily basis to, to, to keep your skills sharp? 
I still read aloud every day. I still do that. Sometimes I'll vocalize, and then after five minutes I say, I don't think I'd hire you now. I'm not competitive anymore, you know, as a singer. And that was hard because light voices like mine really have a shelf life. And really, I know Beverly, once she turned 50, I was older when I stopped singing, but when Beverly turned 50, they were putting so much, is it called reverb? Is that what they call it? You know, echo-like? Yeah, behind behind the high notes. And it you were it was obvious that her vibrato was really starting to widen to where they had to wow. do something to minimize it. Yeah, and um, so that happens. You know that happens often. And that's life. Get older. That's just how a wider how vibrato. We... Oh yeah, that's <laughs> in for me. I don't have a wide vibrato, but it's it's getting there. It's 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 uh, starting to show age. Maureen, this is Annie. I want to ask you, what is the future of, like you talked about aging and the vibrato and everything, you know, so what can older voice actors and singers and performers hope for, you know, in the, I wouldn't say in the, in the autumnal years, let's put it that way. (laughs) When you're of a certain age. age, (laughs) And what is that certain age? Uh, did you reach that certain age? I mean, I just, I'm just curious. Uh, well, I'll tell you sometime when we're not on the air here. <laughs> My certain age, you know, what people tend to do is reinvent themselves. You know, I did mostly acting and singing as I was, you know, going. I, I mean, I did a lot of writing, but nothing to the extent of what I did in terms of acting and singing. But I realized a couple of years ago probably three or four, I realized I had to reinvent myself because I wasn't competitive as a singer any longer. Um, so now you've got that Netflix so, thing. So, yeah, well, the, my manager called me and told me about Netflix and asked right. me if I want to play a blind woman. And, oh, I got to tell, well, I'll tell you this. When I went to that audition, they had all these sighted women, old gals, you know, we're all sitting there. And I remember this one woman said, oh, all the old bags that showed up at last week's audition are here. It's true, you know, and everybody knows the drill because all of them had been in the business a while. So we all sort of knew what to expect. But I had a feeling I'd get the job. I just thought maybe they'd want to go for that reality thing. So Yeah, well, there was, there was a talk about a competitive advantage. <laughs> yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I would like to think that that blind people can play roles that are not for blind people. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're pretty much limited at the moment. But I think at least we're getting hired, you know. So that that's a good thing. Thank you. Yeah, that's thank a good you. thing. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say about reinventing yourself. I mean, that's why I started... Yes to say, oh, my God, you know, what am I going to do? And my friend Steve is saying, this, he's the guy that we are writing the thing together. And he said, too, you know, I've only gotten one. I'm just doing uh, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I got one episode this year, and I, I still have the passion, and I've got to keep my chops going. And we mm-hmm. both felt very much the same way, and so that's why we started doing plays and stuff. I still have the passion I had as a child. I mean, yeah. I still really have to sing, but I, yeah, I do. I have the same passion. And it's the only reason it isn't destroyed and that I can keep it up is that I had talents beyond the singing. You know, right. I, I mean, right. I, I still have to be creative or I don't know. It would, I don't know what I would yeah. do. I know. I, I feel the same Talent to, uh, beyond the one that we focused, but you were always so varied, and now you just can change your focus there. And you know, we appreciate yeah, you so much for being with us. Well, I appreciate you. You know, she's a hell of a great person to talk to. I love Nancy. I don't even know her. You know, we had some great little long talks. And I pick up that Southern thing, you know, and I mean, you just are such fun to talk to. <laughs> well, we've, we've, we've had a great time with this, really, for sure. Yes, and we have. Absolutely. Before we wrap this up, too, I just want to make sure, Maureen, is there a way that people can reach you or is there a website that people can go to to read more about you? Well, I don't have uh, my website is under construction. I don't have a new one yet. And uh I don't know. I guess they could reach me via uh, my email, which probably they have. 
it, which is Voice Pro, the number four, the letter U at gmail.com. So that's Voice Pro, the number four, U at gmail.com. Yes. But I will, I want to just preface it by saying that I can't help you if you're a wannabe. I can't do it. I can't. You've got to do it. I mean, I can give you advice, but I can't. I can't give you the raw talent. I really can't. There's a lot of talent here in New York, and what makes the difference, I think, is discipline and connections. And if you don't have both, it's kind of rough. So you have to keep up your talent so you can be competitive. Thank you so much, Maureen, for your time and great conversation here in the Art Parlor. Before you go, listeners, we have some samples of Maureen's work. We're going to hear a Clairol commercial, followed by a children's Smurf commercial, and then part of a piece called Trees on the Mountain, which I will explain further before it plays. Clairol has something new for girls with long hair. It's Clairol's Long and Silky Conditioner. Long and silky, unfrazzles, detangles, silkens and shines. Makes your ends look so together, you could swear they've been trimmed. Clairol Long and Silky, for girls who never want to cut their hair. The Smurfs are back and the world is blue. Collect figures, plush, and play sets, too. March into the Smurf world from the Mushroom Playhouse. Careful, don't get wet. Better look out for the Gargamel and don't get caught in his net. And now for Trees on the Mountains. Maureen writes that it's one of her most favorite pieces. She says, singing it was truly a gift. It eases into a haunting melody paired with an equally haunting piano accompaniment. She continues, The atmosphere is such that it reminds me of a lone pine tree leaning into the snow in the woods of Oklahoma. It encourages me to hear the whisper of a distant stream, the conversation of crickets, and the memory of lost loves. That is so poetic. And now, here's a sample of Trees on the Mountains. We apologize for the low quality in recording, as the recorder at the time was not the greatest. is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Radio. 
It airs beginning every Saturday at 8 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. To listen and for a full schedule, go to www.acbradio.org mainstream. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at acbradio.org and please feel free to check out our website, www.friendsinart.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month. Thank you.